Hello, and welcome to Eyes on Success, a weekly program covering a wide variety of topics of interest to people with vision loss. I'm Nancy Goodman Torpy. And I'm Pete Torpy. There are many ways of finding enjoyment, so I just tailored my program to my strengths, which people ought to do in general, right? Not just if you're blind. And that's me speaking with the person who interviewed me this week. As many of our listeners know, despite being born blind, my co-host of Eyes on Success, Peter Torpy, enjoyed math and science as a youth and went on to obtain a PhD in engineering physics and work as a research scientist at Xerox Corporation. This week, we will listen in on an interview that Marie Sina of Deutsche Welle did with Pete about his educational and work experiences as a blind scientist. But first, for our tip of the week, this week's tip comes from Marie Sina. Well, I think my tip would be to never stop being curious about new things because that's what gets me motivated at work and that's what gets me speaking to lovely people like you two about topics that I personally don't know much yet about but love finding out more about. Support for Eyes on Success is provided by APHConnectCenter.org, empowering people toward independence and success by providing blogs, information, and resources for individuals of all ages who are blind or visually impaired. Information and referral line are at 1-800-232-5463. You are listening to Eyes on Success. Success, 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 success. Let's start by meeting Marie and learning about the study she was conducting regarding accessibility of STEM education and careers. Hello, everyone. Uh, my name is uh, Marie Sina. I'm a science journalist at the Deutsche Welle DW, and I'm currently working on a piece on breaking down barriers for people who are blind in STEM fields. The starting point of my study was a school in Marburg in Germany, a school for the blind, which focuses on developing new techniques in chemistry and biology and physics to um, help the students at the school uh, better learn STEM subjects and then be able to go on to study them later on as well, um, should they want to. So my, yeah, my interest is, is specifically on STEM fields and um, their accessibility for people who are blind. And how did you find Pete? I was Googling, to be honest. Uh, I was just using the terms blind scientist, <laughs> and that's what came up. And then I stumbled upon your podcast coming up in my search results. Support for Eyes on Success is made possible in part by our corporate partners, Find out more about partnership opportunities by sending an email to hosts at eyesonsuccess.net. This week's focus topic is excerpted from Marie Sina's interview of Pete about his experiences as a blind student and later as a blind professional physicist. Naturally, I chimed in occasionally, too. Yeah, if it's okay with you, I'd I'd love to start by asking you some questions, Peter. Sure. 
So I was reading that right before entering graduate school that you almost lost all of your vision. And I was wondering, well, first of all, what you studied in graduate school and how your visual impairment impacted your your ability to to study a science and a master's. So let me give you a quick sort of synopsis of my visual issues. I was born with glaucoma when I was a kid, and they didn't realize it could happen in kids, so it went untreated for a bit. So basically, most of my school career, I had 2,200 vision or so. I was categorized as legally blind, but you know, in some sense, I didn't consider myself blind. Well, you were blind enough to go to a school for the blind. True, because I couldn't see the blackboard from the front row. So I used a little handheld magnifier once I started public school to see the blackboard. And I just looked closely at things. I didn't use a cane at the time. But over time, as I was going through college, in particular, my pressure was out of control in my eyes. And I had had so many surgeries, they were afraid of doing another one. So they held off doing any other surgery until after I got my bachelor's degree, at which time the surgery left me totally blind. And that was a new experience for me. So I had to relearn my Braille skills that I hadn't used since I was in elementary school. And I said, well, I have a fellowship to go to graduate school in engineering physics at the University of Virginia. That's when I learned to use a cane. And I just have to learn these skills and get prepared for doing that. So I entered the program at the University of Virginia to study engineering physics with the intention of getting a PhD. And that's how I started out. I'm not sure about engineering physics, but was there a lot of lab work involved? Were there a lot of experiments involved? And how did you experience the ability to study as a blind person? Were there a lot of hurdles? Well, so interestingly, a lot of my courses were book work, mathematics, reading a lot of textbooks and things like that. But when it came time to deciding on some research for my PhD dissertation, I really wanted to be an experimentalist. So I actually started out working in a lab doing some spectroscopy. And I had another graduate student working with me as a team. And we started working through that. And it wasn't easy, and some things he had to do, and some things I would do, and some things I would do with some assistance, but it was possible, and it was sort of working out. And at one point, my advisor and I sat down, and he talked to me. He said, you know, Pete, I know you're really driven, and you're really smart, and you can do almost anything you want to do. Just realize that if you want to do an experimental thesis, it'll probably take you a little bit more time. And I thought about it. I thought there were many ways to enjoy physics. You didn't necessarily have to be in the lab to do these things. And being a pragmatist, I decided I didn't want to spend eight or 10 years doing my PhD thesis. I wanted to finish it up, get out there, and start making some contributions in the real world. So I switched over to doing some computational uh, research on computers. You know, computers are really suited well to people who are visually impaired. Especially now, back when you were in graduate school in the mid-1970s, not as much. Well, that's true. They didn't have nearly any of the accessibility features associated with computers back then. In fact, we didn't have personal computers back then. It was all done on mainframe computers. So basically, you tailored your study so that you you wouldn't end up 
doing lab work because that would have proven kind of too too lengthy of a process. Yes, it would have involved a bit more work, been a little bit harder to do. You know, as I said, I, there are many ways of finding enjoyment. So I just tailored my program to my strengths, which people ought to do in general, right? Not just if you're blind. Yeah. And I just want to clarify something. So that operation right after college did, in fact, leave Pete totally blind. And he had three months that summer to learn new blindness skills so that he could start in graduate school. But pretty much within the first year of graduate school, some vision returned, not a whole lot. But he was able to rely on magnification, which in the mid-1970s was a big deal because that existed. And Mm -hmm. all of these screen readers and uh, refreshable Braille displays did not exist. So you were really able to go through your education using magnification and it wasn't until partway into your successful career that you had a switch to speech and Braille. That's true. Late in the first year of graduate school, I was able to use a CCTV, a closed-circuit TV system, to blow up print very large, maybe you know three, four inches with lots of contrast. How did it start with you being able to use computers for your work? Because you were just mentioning that there there wasn't that much on offer in the beginning. You didn't even have your own personal computer. How was that for you? How did you solve that problem? So the CCTV really helped. At that time, you had to type up punch cards on a keyboard and then put them into a card reader, and the mainframe computer would read it that way. So I was able to type. I had learned good typing skills even in elementary school at the School for the Blind. That was one skill that it was very good that they taught us back then. So I was able to type on the keyboard to make my punch cards, although I couldn't proofread them until I typed them all up and ran them back to my office where the closed-circuit TV system was and proofread them, or otherwise just put them in the card reader and get back errors from the computer. (laughs) So some things took a little bit longer, certainly, being blind, and it took a little bit more effort, a little bit more planning, but it was certainly feasible. Were you ever worried that losing your sight would prevent you from becoming a scientist completely? You know, when you're young, you really don't think about stuff like that. It's like you're invincible in your 20s. Nothing can ever happen to you. You don't start worrying about stuff like that until you're older. So I just really never thought about the challenges I might face trying to find a job as a blind person. Nowadays, I realize I talk to people and there are a fair number of barriers to doing that. And you have to overcome the prejudices and biases of people against people with disabilities. But back then, I didn't really think about it. I thought, you know, I'm doing a great job here in graduate school. I'm pretty smart and pretty proactive and things will work out. Talking about prejudices, do you sometimes think that blind scientists are taken less seriously because we think of science as something so visual? Did you encounter any basically hurdles that categorize science as something purely visual? I feel very fortunate that in my life, everybody was always very encouraging and supportive of me. I give my parents particular credit for that, for not babying me, doing things for me, and they always let me face my own challenges. They were a support network when I needed it, but they were always very encouraging. I had very encouraging teachers through high school 
in college. I never really ran into a lot of that, and I don't know why. Maybe part of it's my attitude. Part of it was that I had some vision when I was younger, so you know, although I was blind, there were many things I could do, even though there were some things I couldn't. Once you finished your PhD, how was finding a job in science? Was it kind of a daunting prospect that it wouldn't be possible, or how, how did you experience that? Back then, finding a job was very different than it is now. What one did was write up some letters, put them in envelopes. With a resume. With a resume, send them to companies that you thought were hiring. And there was a booklet that the university made up with lists of different companies around the country in different areas. And you went through the list, look at which ones sounded interesting or interesting locations, and sent a bunch of letters out. And I did get a bunch of interviews. I never mentioned that I was blind on my resume or in the introductory letter. And the first notion that I was blind that the employers or potential employers had was when they'd call me up and say, would you like to come for an interview? And I'd say, okay, when I fly in, I'm the guy at the airport with the white cane. Can I insert a question here, which I don't actually know the answer to? But Pete, you said you sent out a whole lot of letters and resumes and you got called for a bunch of interviews. Of the places you got interviews, how many offers did you get? I probably went on half a dozen interviews and got two or three job offers. That's really good. I think that speaks well of those people's attitudes towards your blindness. It doesn't always work that way, but, you know... Pete was fortunate that somebody offered him a job that he did very well with. I think some of it is attitude also. You know, some people walk into a job and they expect the employer to make accommodations for what they need or to solve the problems that they run into. And that was never my expectation. My expectation was, I'm the blind person. This is my issue to overcome if I need help or some resources from my manager or the people I'm working with, I have to let them know what those accommodations are because they haven't lived the experience of being blind. You know, I really think the onus was kind of on me. And that's the way I approached things at Xerox. In fact, it was kind of funny. When I showed up at Xerox the first day, I was kind of impressed. They knew I used a closed circuit TV system. And I walked into my office, and there was this huge monitor with large print on it. And I said, what's this? And they said, well, you know, we bought you this because we figured you shouldn't have to bring your one from home. You should have one at work here. And it turned out to be a color monitor, which back then they were CRTs. And I had to look so close at the screen that I thought it was not a good idea to have my head so close to a color TV monitor. And I expressed that to them. I told them, look, this is not an acceptable solution. I appreciate you trying to do a nice thing. And I told them what I need. And eventually, that's what they did, was just give that monitor to someone else and bought me what I needed. Mm -hmm. But you have to solve the problem for other people. You know what you need best as a blind person. And then you feel as though as soon when you provide the solutions, that has always been kind of received positively then by your colleagues and, and your work environment. Well, yeah, and particularly working at Xerox, it was a big company with lots of money. Money was never an issue. They bought me all kinds of assistive 
equipment through the years. If I told them I needed something, they went out and bought it, even if there were budget crunches. It's nice to work at a large company like that with the resources. Yeah. It may have been more difficult at a smaller company. What did you uh, do at Xerox? Could you quickly explain that to me again? Oh, so this was kind of funny. So I wanted to major in engineering physics as opposed to physics because I wanted to do applied physics. I figured if you have all this knowledge, you ought to be able to do some good with it. And one thing that um, physicists don't learn, they learn all kinds of things, electricity and magnetism, quantum mechanics, mechanics, statistical mechanics, but they rarely learn about fluid mechanics. So as part of my engineering part of my program, I learned all about fluid mechanics. And it turned out at the time, Xerox was just starting up programs in inkjet printers. And Xerox always hired lots of physicists, but with their inkjet program, they had all these physicists, but no one knew any fluid mechanics. So my background was ideal for what they were looking for. Mm -hmm. Perfect. So I wound up working on inkjet printers. And I started out early on doing computer models and simulations of the process. So how the drops got ejected from the nozzles, what happened when the drops hit the papers, how the heat built up in the printhead when you were printing, some of the mechanical aspects, etc. Later on in my career, I actually got into image processing. So how to make the prints look pretty. And mm -hmm. you know, it was kind of ironic having a blind person work on making the prints look better that I couldn't see. So how did you do that? How did that work? From being able to see earlier in life, I knew what things looked like. And I had a sense of colors. I had a sense of what detail, crispness meant, sharpness of images. And, you know, a lot of it is in inkjet, where do you put the drops? How dark is the print going to look? How crisp is it going to look? How do you make an edge? And so I had a sense of, of that. And the other thing is, I eventually went on to manage the group in research that was responsible for developing the image processing algorithms for our inkjet printers and for developing the color correction tables for our printers. I tell people it worked to my advantage being blind in some sense, because all the members of my team, they had to verbalize what they saw in images when they were talking to me. And sometimes just making people verbalize what they're thinking makes their thoughts a little bit more clear and crisp. So it helped the communication of the team as well. I think so, yeah, yeah. And speaking of advantages, do you think there are any specific advantages in working in STEM fields for uh, people who are blind? Well, as I said, my job, I think it was somewhat of an advantage because it forced people to work in kind of a different paradigm. Mm, mm. Because I think what my research has kind of shown, at least indicated so far, is that STEM subjects are still today less accessible um, to people who are blind than, for example, social sciences. What, what's your experience with that? So, you know, we have interviewed many people with many jobs over the past years for this show. And to me, any job that requires you to talk, listen, read, write, and think should be no obstacle to a blind person, because especially with today's technology, even the reading part is easy. And 
every lawyer we've talked to, you know, they say I was near the top of my class in a reputable law school, and I've had a very, very, very hard time getting any kind of job. So I don't know that it's easier in other fields than it is in science. Not even in regards to the the issue of, for example, conducting experiments. Well, you would think that would be harder, but, you know, once you get to a certain level in a science career, you've got a technician doing the experiments. I mean, we've talked to pharmacists. They have pharmaceutical technicians counting the pills. They get to do the higher level work. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, the problem is getting through the initial programs, getting through some of the school programs where you have to do the labs and the experiments, although often at that level, you can have an assistant and people wind up working through it. But I think in general, as Nancy says, when you get to more of an advanced level, you'll wind up being the supervisor. I mean, how many professors are actually in the lab doing the work on the papers that they're writing in journals? They walk in to give advice to the graduate students. Right. It's more of a supervisory type of thing. Mm -hmm. Do you feel like there's been an improvement? Uh, I'm not sure if if you can speak on this, but if there's been an improvement uh, on the side of universities making STEM fields more accessible to blind university students? You know, I'm one person and I haven't been in the universities for a while, but from people we interview, it sounds like a lot more colleges these days have accessibility programs. So they have a department that will make test materials accessible, talk to the professors to make sure that there aren't any barriers for the student. Back when I was a student, you had to do that all yourself. You were your own advocate. You solved your own problems. So these days, that makes it a little bit easier, maybe a little less onerous for students. I also think Mm -hmm. that um, the technologies have improved a whole lot since I was a student. I mean, for example, Nancy talks about the CCTVs. They were just starting to be made back then. They were big, bulky devices. They weren't portable at all. And expensive. And they're very expensive. Speech synthesizers, you listen to them back then, you could barely understand them. These days, they sound very human. Mm -hmm. Refreshable Braille displays were a new thing in the Mm mid-80s. And nowadays, that's all common. And a lot of this technology is actually these days built into devices like your smartphone. My smartphone has voiceover built into it. It speaks. It has magnification built in. My Windows computer has narrator speaking and enlargement features. Back in the old days, you had to buy a $2,000 hardware device if you wanted to have a speech synthesizer with your computer. And then you needed your wife to install it. <laughs> right. <laughs> From my end, that's, that's everything, but I'm not sure if there's something you would like to talk about that I didn't cover. The only story I can think about is the one with the, when I wanted to buy my first computer at Xerox. It was a, a mini computer, and it was like a $50,000 computer. And people were reasonably supportive of my management, although I had to go to the vice president of research and kind of make the case for spending that much money on a mini computer. This is before anybody had personal computers at all. And 
one thing I thought was interesting, although I always got good reviews and was well thought of as Xerox as, as a researcher, one of the other managers came up to Nancy, who also has her PhD in physics and worked at Xerox, by the way, and asked her, how is Peter going to manage having his own computer? And I turned to the guy who I thought actually was your boss and the guy making the decision on the purchase. And I said, well, every time he moves, he manages to take apart and reconnect his stereo. How much harder can this be? <laughs> but, you know, Pete's pretty persuasive, and I don't think he was going to approve the purchase without asking me that question first. But it was kind of funny, as open as people were with me and as highly regarded as I was at Xerox, people are sometimes afraid to confront the person themselves yeah. with the disability. So they went around and asked Nancy. Which happened all the time, by the way. One thing I thought was funny, by the way, was, um, so I use refreshable Braille displays, speech synthesizers, and uh, CCTVs at work. Many of my colleagues never knew how I did my work. We'd have these bring-your-kid-to-work day where the kid would go from lab to lab and office to office, and my colleagues would come in with their children, and they'd be looking, and they were fascinated. They'd say, oh, is this how you do your work? No one ever asked. <laughs> so it's really, it comes down to communication. Yeah, and I think that's a big thing is, I, I kind of said this before, I think the person with the disability really has to advocate for their self, make other people feel comfortable about it. They have to know how to solve their own problems and communicate what resources they need to the powers that be. And you just got to make people feel comfortable about it. My blindness is never a big thing to me. If people wanted to ask questions, that was fine. I just, you know, everybody does their work in a different way. And so I always had that type of attitude, and I rarely had problems with people on account of it. If I needed something, I asked. I wasn't going to wait for someone else to figure out there was a problem. You don't want to let the situation evolve into a problem before you speak up and try to make things work correctly. Great. Well, thanks so much for sharing all this with me. Thank you. It was really interesting. You are listening to Eyes on Success. 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 Now for this week's final item, how to get Deutsche Villa and how to contact Marie Sina. If people wanted to contact you or learn more about your publication, how could they do that? They could uh, contact me via email. That's marie.sina, S-I-N-A, at dw.com. Or they could follow me on Twitter at it's Marie Sina. Um, and I'd be happy to chat. And if people wanted to find Deutsche Welle articles, where would they go? They would go to dw.com. And um, there is a whole English website. And we have the same homepage in 32 different languages. So there's something there for everyone, I think. <laughs> and as usual, you can find all that contact information in the show notes associated with this episode at www.eyesonsuccess.net. If you're interested in contacting me or have general questions about the show, you can always reach us using the email hosts at eyesonsuccess.net.
That's it for show number 2249. Next week on Eyes on Success, we'll be talking about a program called Flight for Sight. Blind people are capable of doing almost anything they want these days. But next week, you may be surprised to learn that a blind person was piloting a plane. We'll talk with Kaya Armstrong, a blind college student who learned to fly a plane and then flew herself cross-country thanks to the Flight for Sight program sponsored by the Foundation for Blind Children. Thanks for joining us this week, and we hope you'll join us again next week for that episode. You've been listening to Eyes on Success, hosted and produced by Nancy Goodman Torpy and Peter Torpy. You can access the full archive of previous shows, subscribe to the podcast, and much more by going to our website, www.eyesonsuccess.net. If you have questions about anything you've heard on the show or have suggestions for future shows, send an email to hosts at eyesonsuccess.net. Thank you for listening and have a nice day.